everyone is doing well today. You probably noticed along with me that the time change brought in spring with it, right? It's been nice and sunny. I've been enjoying that. We're supposed to enjoy our lives. I can enjoy these things with you, I hope. Um, we've been going through Ecclesiastes together. Uh, this is the fourth message in that. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, please open your Bibles up to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And today's, today's message is about enjoying life. Now, Ecclesiastes is a specific genre of literature in the Bible. It is wisdom literature. Uh, we can use this, this book of the Bible to see um, what God would show us to be wise, how we can live our lives that way. And Ecclesiastes has a very um, compelling way of asking us questions that we need to search through and answer in our lives, questions that we might not normally think of. And we will see some of those questions posed this morning. Have you noticed along with me that our culture places a massive value on wealth? Um, it's not tough to go online and find lists of the top wealthiest people, the Fortune 500. Uh, we have all sorts of ways to see how important it is to be wealthy in our, in our culture. This message is countercultural because this message is going to show us that if we pursue wealth, we are going to be ultimately dissatisfied in life. Now, the style of literature that was used in these two chapters here is um, a style that was very popular 3,000 years ago in the Near East where this was written. Not so popular today. Let me explain it to you. It's called a chiasm. Um, you may or may not have heard of a chiasm before. I put it together on a little visual behind me to help you see how a chiasm works. That was a visual cue for the next slide. Yes, there it is. Okay. So a chiasm works like this. It starts off with point A. It also ends with point A. And those two points either work together or they contrast against each other. But they help us learn the same thing. And then point B will be the second point used in that form of literature as well as the second last point. And on and on it goes until it gets to the climax. And that's the key point for that message. So if this was uh, 3,000 years ago when we were teaching it, we would do point A, B, C all the way through the climax. And then we do them in reverse order back to A again. That is not a style that we're used to reading these days, though. I, I doubt any of you have read an essay that uses a chiasm as a way to learn things. Usually when you read um, literature, they don't employ the chiasm. So instead of using that today, what we're going to do is do point A and B at the same time, or A and A at the same time. A from the start of the passage, and then A from the end of the passage. And then point B and B at the same time, and then point C, and that'll help us. So here's the points. Um, point A is the pursuit of wealth will not satisfy. That's the first thing that's introduced in Ecclesiastes 5.8. And then the last thing that's um, looked at again at the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 6. And then the second one, riches, honor, and wealth do not equal enjoyment. And then the main point's going to be God gives the ability to enjoy life. So we're going to do uh, point A first. The pursuit of wealth will not satisfy. So read along with me, Ecclesiastes 5, verses 8 through 10. If you see oppression of the poor and perversion of justice and righteousness in the province, don't be astonished at the situation, because one official protects another official, and higher officials protect them. The profit from the land is taken by all. The king is served by the field. The one who loves money is never satisfied with money. And whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This too is futile. 
there is a dilemma that we all face. Profit can be taken by others. Don't be shocked at governments and officials who take more than they should from the people that they govern. That is what verse 8 teaches. It would be a mistake for us to think that corruption in government is a new thing. And in our country in particular, we can be thankful for the many people in government who are not corrupt. We actually live in a great part of the world for a righteous government. I mean, it's got its problems here and there, but believe you me, there are parts of the world where every single level of government is just insanely corrupt. So thank God that we live in a spot that has a government that we do. The point is, though, your profit can be taken by others, and there will be nothing that you can do about it. Now, that's quite a frustrating thought for most people. Uh, we feel like we've earned the profit. We should get to control the profit. And if that's how you think, we'll then get used to disappointment because profit can be taken by others. It doesn't happen every time, but every time that it does happen, we feel it in our hearts because it hurts. That is not fair, we say. And of course, it isn't fair. But here's the truth. Those who love money are never satisfied with money. The teacher, and by the way, the word Ecclesiastes is Latin for the teacher or the preacher. So the teacher isn't saying that money and wealth are bad. He is pointing out that if you want satisfaction and enjoyment in life, then don't make wealth and money your first love. Don't let the pursuit of money be your top priority in life. For if you do, you will not be content. Moving along to verses 11 and 12. When good things increase, the ones who consume them multiply. What, then, is the profit to the owner except to gaze at them with his eyes? The sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats little or much. But the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. So I put together a little illustration to help us understand these two verses. Uh, we're going to look at this in terms of a company. Somebody out there, one of you, has a great idea to make a brand new chocolate bar that is just amazing. You've named it Hawkwood Gold. So, our Hawkwood chocolate, that's why we're calling it Hawkwood chocolate, or else the slide won't make any sense. So it's a great chocolate bar. Everybody here loves the chocolate bar. Um, it crosses every single allergy guideline so everyone can enjoy it. It's just the amazing super chocolate bar. Congratulations. It has blown up. Calgary's eating it. We're all enjoying it. It's becoming very popular in this part of the world. Of course, then, a problem's found out. It's not producing very well in eastern uh, North America, on the east coast there. So more employees need to be hired to market Hawkwood cho chocolate. A whole staff has been hired to make the chocolate. A staff has been hired to market the chocolate. The demand becomes so high that a factory is bought and converted to a high-production chocolate factory. And on and on it goes, new development after development. And according to Ecclesiastes 5, it is the workers who are the ones who are going to sleep well at night. All they need to worry about is doing their particular task on the assembly line. But the person with the great idea has become the one with the great responsibility. They look out at all the people whose livelihoods depend on them. All the loans that need satisfied, the orders that need filled, the work that needs done. And it's tough for them to find satisfaction, to find that they are on top of it. In the is the teacher of Ecclesiastes against business and making a profit? 
not necessarily, but he understands the weight of responsibility that accompanies great wealth. It's not all fun and games, and it becomes the workers having the great sleep at night. And the owner who lies awake trying to think of all the ways to solve the new problems that have arisen from Hawkwood chocolate. And if the reason why you're working so hard is a love of money and a desire for wealth, you will not find a lasting satisfaction. Let's go to the end of Ecclesiastes 6 to find the other half of point A, verses 7 through 9. All man's labor is for his stomach, yet the appetite is never satisfied. Well, what advantage then does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage is there for the poor person who knows how to conduct himself before others? Better what the eyes see than wandering desire. This too is futile in a pursuit of the wind. I have a question for you all. Was anybody hungry yesterday? If you were hungry, there's one way to satisfy that hunger. It's by eating food. And hopefully you were all able to eat enough food yesterday to satisfy your hunger. But will the food that you ate yesterday satisfy today's hunger? No. New day, you need to have more food. We work hard for the food that we eat, but we've got to keep on working because we want to keep on eating. The teacher is not only talking about our appetite for food, he's also talking about our appetite for wealth. It will never be satisfied. What advantage, then, does the wise one have over the fool? In terms of satisfying hunger and wealth, there is no advantage. Whether you are rich or poor, if your love is money, you will never be satisfied. But is there an advantage to be found for those, or but there is an advantage to be found for those who don't have an insatiable desire for money and wealth. So there's also a phrase in here we should highlight that says, better what the eyes see than a wandering desire. I bet you could sort out what's being talked about here. You know, who wouldn't love a new car or see a house on the hill and say, I wish we had that house over there instead of the one that we had. You know, too bad we don't have enough money to go on that amazing vacation that those people are on. Examples of wandering desire. Knowing what you have, but seeing something else. Wanting more. And that want for more never leads to a satisfaction. It leads to unfulfilled promises. You work and you work for something, but it's fleeting. Like chasing the wind, a futile pursuit. The wisdom is that it's better to be content with what you have, with what your eyes can see here and now, what is right in front of you, what God has already graciously provided for you. So the first point that the teacher has made here for us is clear. The pursuit of wealth will not satisfy. Maybe there is a question beginning to form in your mind. What will satisfy? Uh, maybe you're saying, actually, I want for my life to be enjoyable. I don't want to spend all my time chasing the wind. Keep listening. There's hope. But first, we're going to go to a second point, which is not so hopeful. Here's the second point. Riches, wealth, and honor do not equal enjoyment. So this is from Ecclesiastes 5, 13 to 17, and Ecclesiastes 6, 1 to 6. Now, this seems a little bit counterintuitive. We would think that those who have great honor would also have great enjoyment in life. We would think that those who have made a great fortune would just be spending all their time enjoying the fruits of their labor. Let's read what verses 13 to 17 say in Ecclesiastes 5. 
And there is a sickening tragedy I have seen under the sun. Wealth kept by its owner to his harm. That wealth was lost in a bad venture. So when he fathered a son, he was empty-handed. As he came from his mother's womb, so he will go again. Naked as he came, he will take nothing for his efforts that he can carry in his hands. This too is a sickening tragedy. Exactly as he comes, so he will go. What does the one gain who struggles for the wind? What is more, he eats in darkness all his days with much sorrow, sickness, and anger. Is the point of wealth simply to keep it? Is that why we have wealth, so we can keep it? No, Jesus tells a parable in Luke chapter 12 about a rich fool who had one year a massive bumper crop. He made more money in that one season than he would need to make for the rest of his life. And so he says to himself, self, it's time to build some bigger barns to store all of this so that I can enjoy my life. He makes a way to keep that wealth as safe as he can. But here's how the parable ends. Luke 12, verses 20 and 21. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you, and these things you have prepared, whose will they be? That is how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Keeping wealth, hoarding wealth, assuming that wealth has been granted to us solely for our use and enjoyment, that is a grievous error. That is a sickening tragedy. And the teacher gives us a vivid picture of this. You know, this was written about 3,000 years ago, and in those days, wealth was very much generational passed down as an inheritance so that the next generation could build on the foundation of the previous generation. Family wealth would grow and grow and grow over time. So the tragedy here is when wealth that was kept is lost. Through some sort of an unfortunate event, the entire wealth of a family is gone. What now can the father pass down? His children will have to start over again, starting from scratch. This is a great shame. This is a great heartache. It's all gone. Everything he'd worked so hard for, that his parents had worked so hard for, all this generational wealth, gone in a moment. What follows is a darkness, a depression. Now that father is just filled with sorrow. He spends his days in anger, grieving the loss. This does not have to be our reaction when a great loss happens. And some of us have experienced great loss. But when the love of your heart is money, when you do so much to keep your wealth and then it's gone in a moment, you may soon find yourself to be a broken-hearted person. Job is the example of how to respond when tragedy hits. Job was an exceedingly wealthy man, known throughout the land for his generosity, for his wisdom, for his devotion to God. And then in a day, it all went away. Messenger after messenger came with more and more tragic news. Everything was lost. And how does Job respond? Job 1.21, he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Praise the name of Yahweh. Job found his identity in God, not in his money, not in his family, not in his status, what people thought about him. 
Can you say with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away? Praise the name of Yahweh. Well, there's a contrast given by the teacher beginning in Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Here in this story that complements the first one we just read, there is one who has riches, who has wealth, who has honor. Yet, even though he has all these things, he is not able to enjoy it. Let's read from verses 1 to 6 of Ecclesiastes 6. Here was a tragedy I have observed under the sun, and it weighs heavily on humanity. God gives a man riches, wealth, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all he desires for himself. But God does not allow him to enjoy them. Instead, a stranger will enjoy them. This is futile and a sickening tragedy. A man may father a hundred children and live many years. No matter how long he lives, if he is not satisfied by good things and does not even have a proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For he comes in futility and he goes in darkness and his name is shrouded in darkness. Though a stillborn child does not see the sun and is not conscious, it has more rest than he. And if he lives a thousand years twice, but does not experience happiness, do not both go to the same place. A quick note on that last line, when it says the same place, it's saying that both will eventually one day die. It's not talking about the afterlife in this passage. So what is the point of having riches, wealth, and honor if you don't enjoy your life? So there's two stories that, that um, the teacher gives us, and they're contrasted one against the other. The first one, the end of Ecclesiastes 5. The second one, the beginning of Ecclesiastes 6. In the first story, a, there's a wealthy man with one son. Second story, a wealthy man with 100 children. Obviously a hyperbole. First story, the rich person lived relatively few years. Second story, the rich person lives many years. You know, the Israelite culture has a high value on having many children and having a long life. The one in the second story seems to have it all. First story, there was a bad venture that caused the lack of wealth. And that lack of wealth resulted in sorrow. Second story, he has the wealth, honor and riches, but God does not allow him to enjoy it. So side note here, if you are able to enjoy the good in your life, you could stop right now and thank God for that because it is God who makes us able to enjoy goodness. Now comes the extreme comparison. I think it's a, a troubling comparison. It's a little bit delicate. But here's what he teaches us. He says, however long that a person lives, if that person finds no joy in life, a stillborn baby is better off than him. So the stillborn child never experiences life outside of the womb. Never experiences any of the loss, pain, or sorrow of this world. And so says the teacher, the stillborn is better off. I think this is an extreme comparison, all to make a point. A stillborn child, I would not wish on anybody. The comparison is extreme is extreme, however, to drive home the main point that the teacher wants for us to get. And that is, a long life with no enjoyment is worse than a life not lived. But there's a secondary point that I want to get to first before the main point. And the secondary point is this. A stillborn child is still a child. And that, that stillborn baby still has every bit of value and purpose 
that you or I would have. That, that baby still is made in the image of God, just as you and I are. Throughout the entirety of Scripture, we see the value that God places on life, even life in the womb. Every life is sacred. Every person has value. And we believe wholeheartedly as Christians that life begins exactly at conception, that a person is a person even nine months before birth, for God is the one who creates us in our mother's womb. That's the secondary point there. The main point, the contrast, is consider the hyperbole employed by the teacher to show what a great life that, um, by Israelite standards, that this character has. He seems to have it all. It says he would live a thousand years twice over. For you doing the math, that's 2,000 years. What an amazing thought to live for 2,000 years. But what a terrifying reality if every single one of those years is lived without happiness, without enjoyment. The point, a long life with no enjoyment is worse than a life not lived. Life does not need to be a tragic series of sorrows. When God created people and when God created you, he had joy in mind for us. So the question is, how can we have joy in life? Are we able to make that joy happen? Do we need help from God? Ecclesiastes 5, 18 to 20, the climax of this teacher's message here. Here is what I have seen to be good. It is appropriate to eat, drink, and experience good in all the labor one does under the sun during the few days of his life God has given him because that is his reward. God has also given riches and wealth to every man. And he has allowed him to enjoy them, take his reward, and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God, for he does not often consider the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. We get to enjoy life. This is the privilege that we have. The emphasis of these three verses is enjoyment in life. It's the whole point of this section. Life is to be enjoyed. So let's take a closer look at verse 20. We see there that the gift of enjoyment comes from God, not from ourselves. When we are living our lives with God's joy, it would really change how we see the world, how we experience the world. It will also change how the world sees us as well. You know, because joy is, or is rarely accompanied by grumbling or arguing. Uh, you don't hear a joyful person out gossiping. Uh, joy does not be seen as an adversary, but joy marks people's, people in life with goodness. If you see a joyful person, that's a good thing. And we see here that we cannot fabricate joy on our own. We can't be on some pursuit of wealth or pursuit of honor or pursuit of riches and think that will bring me joy one day. We're seeing here instead, joy is a gift from God. Here's a fact. Our days on earth are limited. We do not get to decide if we want to live forever. What we do have control over is how will we live these days that we have on earth. You know, you could choose to use your time to pursue wealth and riches and honor. But if that is your love, at the end of it all, you will not be satisfied. For there is never enough. Just as each day you wake up with a fresh appetite that needs once again to be satisfied, you will never satisfy the desire for more riches, honor, or wealth. Instead, 
we can see each day as a gift from God because that is in reality what each day is, a gift from God. We can see the tasks laid out before us as an opportunity to be blessed by God with enjoyment. The things that we go through in life, God can put his joy on those things. Even the things that are like, you look at it from a, a human point of view and you say, where is the joy in that? How could anyone possibly see goodness in that situation? God says, I'm God. I can, I can give a person joy no matter what they're going through. We can start with the common things, the obvious things. Ask God to help you find joy when you spend time with people that you love. You know, sometimes we can allow relationships to sort of wear down, to become survival moments. But God can put joy into these things, and we should ask for that joy. Life is better with God's joy. You can even ask God to help you find joy in the food that you eat, um, in the times that you get to um, do work. It's, it's all of this, and enjoyment is a gift from God. So we need to ask God to help enjoy the days that we have. Uh, thank him for what he does as well. We don't need to be rich to enjoy our lives. We need God's help to enjoy our lives. We truly do. And I, my hope and prayer is that we would all live with God's joy on our lives. But what about the rich? Does that mean if you're rich, you're doomed to a life of sorrow? Not at all. For God can give enjoyment of life to whomever he would please. He is God. In fact, from this passage, we can see that wealth is a gift from God. But can you receive wealth as a gift? Or will you see wealth as what you have rightfully earned, what belongs to you? Will you take the approach of hoarding it and keeping it safe from others? I certainly hope not. I hope that you will see your wealth as a gift from God that can be used for his glory, to show his generosity. Jesus also teaches us that we cannot serve God and money at the same time. We can serve one or the other. Who gets the final say in our decisions? Does God have the final say, or does money have the final say? There are two paths that the teacher has laid a choice for us to walk on, one or the other. We must choose one. We cannot be on both at the same time. One path is that we can spend the time that we have on this earth pursuing wealth, riches, and honor. The second path is that we can focus on enjoying God's gifts every day. Do the tasks that he has laid out before us. Live lives in faithful obedience to God, but ask for him to supply us with the enjoyment for these things. Jesus would agree with this teaching. We see that in Matthew 6, 32, 33. That is a passage where Jesus is teaching about worry. He's teaching how God can provide us with the food that we, eat, that we need. He can provide us with the clothes that we need. And he wraps up this teaching in verses 32 and 33 by saying, For the idolaters eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. God knows what you need, and God can provide. Therefore, we can serve God with all of our hearts, live for his glory, and seek first his kingdom. And it also says that we ought to be seeking his righteousness. How blessed is the person who knows God's commands and lives by them, knowing his power and work in their life. What I'm saying here is it would be foolish for us to say, God, please help me enjoy my life, and then to live our lives disregarding his law and not following his commands. Because his law and his commands are life for us. He is the author of life. 
And when we learn what Jesus taught, when we learn what the Bible says and walk in those ways, we can expect that God would want to bless that. It would be foolish to disregard it. We want to walk in the ways that God has, seeking first his kingdom, seeking first his righteousness. Spending our lives pursuing wealth is not only a waste of time, it will lead to disaster. So instead, put your life into God's hands. Trust him for what you need and live according to his words. Joy is found in God alone. For joy is a gift from God that enables us to enjoy what we have before us today, what our eyes can see right now. Therefore, the teacher commends us to enjoy this life with the help of God. Well, I want to call 